Hi, this is Mike Morse. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic with Kevin Dietz. And today we welcome Aaron Salter, who spent 15 years behind bars for a crime he did not commit. It's one of the most moving and telling stories I've ever heard. I have chills just saying it. You need to stay tuned and watch this and listen to this episode because you won't believe what happened to this, this man and, and what he's doing now that he's been exonerated. So stay tuned. Joining us this morning is Mike Morse, Detroit's top attorney. Mike Morse. Mike Morse is in here to tell us about the backpack giveaway. We uh, adapt and adapt and change things up a little bit every year. Welcome to Open Mike, Aaron Salter. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I've been reading about you for months. Um, I asked Kevin to help get you on the show because you have one of the craziest stories I've ever read about, ever heard about. And from all that I can see from you, I don't see the anger. I see you wanting to help people. I see love. And I want to talk to you about this. So that's why I wanted you here. And again, thanks for being here. Thank you. So Aaron Salter, tell me, uh, how old are you? I'm 37 right now. I'll be 38 on August 15th. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Detroit, on the east side of Detroit, uh, Mack and Cadillac, uh, Mack and Fisher. And tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about your childhood. My upbringing was it was pretty good. My mother was a social worker. She struggled to take care of me and my brother by herself. Um, and we just spent a lot of time in recreation centers and everything while she was at work. You know? okay. So we played football, basketball, you know, uh, dealt with a lot of people in the neighborhood, a lot of kids. So we always grew up around, around a lot of kids. And was your father involved in your upbringing? Um, he was, but he was kind of, him and my mother was going through a thing, okay. you know, but he's back now. So I'm just extremely grateful that I was able to bring my family back together. Are your parents both alive? They are. And where'd you go to high school? I went to high school on 94 in Van Dyke, Detroit Kettering High School. Okay. And did you graduate? I did. I graduated in 2001. And did you, did you play any sports in high school? I played football, high school. Football. Were you a good player? Great. I went to college. So So you're a big guy. How how big are you? Right now I'm probably about like two seventy five, six, six three. Uh, that's a big guy compared to right. me. Right. Okay, everybody's big compared to me. Right. So where'd you go to college? I went to college at the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, historically black college. Um I knew everything that was going on in the city and where I was raised that everything was bad, so I kinda wanted to go out of state and start fresh and give my, myself a chance at life, you know. Did anybody else in your family go to college before you? Um, I was like the first one. That's Believe amazing. it or not, I was like That's the first amazing. one to like go to a major university. So it was a big thing for my family. And did you get a scholarship out of high school? Got a partial scholarship. Okay. And was college something that you'd always dreamed of? Not like, really. Not really. You wouldn't go like that. No, I, I didn't think so. But yeah. tell me, you know, was it was a, was it a, it was a football partial scholarship? Right. And you played football at uh, the, the college in Arkansas? Yes, yes I did. And how many years did you play football? Um, just one year. Um, I was having problems paying my end on the tuition. So the how many years did you attend? Um, actually, it was like a little under a year, actually. Okay. The struggles just got too tough for me, and I decided to come home 
and get my financials in order. Okay. You know? Did you play any ball there when you were there? Um, I practiced. I was sitting out my first year. Okay. And then the next year, I was going to be able to get a full ride, four-year scholarship. Wow. So money got tight. You came back to Detroit. And did you get a job? I tried to get several jobs. You know, I worked at IHOP, and that was just like a joke. Like me coming from school and, you know, having this big football career to working at IHOP, that kind of didn't sit well with me. And they was making me do like a lot of lifting and stuff. They say, this guy big, so we're going to make him carry all the boxes. Sure. And do the grunt work. And I wasn't, I was going to school to use my brain, not my back, you know. So it ain't sit well with me. No, I hear you. Did you know in high school were you a were you a football standout? I mean, were you one of the best on the team? Yeah, I went. Yeah, I was in the paper a lot. I bet. So, um, was it was it a good team? Uh, we was division champs that year. Kettering, you know, was doing bad a lot, and we was actually able to get division championship and play in the city championship. That's great game. So, so he played. That was uh, huge. He played defensive end, which uh, charges at the quarterback. He played linebacker, which is where everyone's running right at you. So you you are you are hitting every single play. Right, right. I was hitting two or three times every single play because you got to go through the line, then you got to hit the line, the running back or whoever catch the ball or the quarterback. So I'm hitting two or three times a game a, a play actually. So did you have dreams of playing once you got home? Did you think? You know, if this if the situation didn't happen in 2003, would, were you going to try to keep playing somehow? Um, actually, I'm, I'm about to start playing with the semi-pro team Seminoles. Oh, wow. Because I want to stay in shape and I want to keep myself focused and I just don't want to miss out on my opportunity, you know. So mm -hmm. I'm just taking advantage of everything that comes my way as that you, I wanted to do. As you should. What a great opportunity. So where are you yes. at in that process? Uh, right now, we're just getting everything together, you know, winter practice and all of that. So stuff. you're practicing. You're getting back in shape. Yeah, I'm actually getting back in shape. I actually had to take a break off because I wanted to figure out innocence maintained. I actually wanted to work on this, and I'm trying to raise my family. So Innocence Maintained. Dot org is a website and, a, and an organization that you have set up that we will talk about um, later, but I want to give it a plug early. We'll give it a plug later. So let's take you back to August 6, 2003. Tell me, um, were you employed in the days before August 6, 2003? Or what was going on in your life at that time? Um, actually, it, my crime actually started on August the 3rd, um, 2003 where my cousin got shot like 12 times right in front of me. So, so that's what led up to all of this that's going on right now. It was an incident that happened three days before um, with a, basically a drug deal went bad type of thing, you know. And you were with your cousin? And, right, And correct. what happened? He got shot and killed? He got shot real bad, and I actually thought he got killed. You know, I fled the scene, um, told my family about it. And they actually moved me, like, to the west side. They was like, we're going to move you out of harm's way. And they moved me over family members on the west side. You know? So were you involved in some shady activities a few days before? Any I really I really wouldn't call it being involved in no shady activities. The thing was that I needed money to go back to school. So, so. listen, no, no, you're, you're not getting in trouble for any of that stuff this far away but so but you were with even if you weren't doing the drugs or selling the drugs you were hanging out with guys who were doing that kind of stuff 
I was. I okay. actually hung out and sought my cousin out to sell drugs to get money. Got you it. know, but I didn't Fair. actually get into the selling drugs or anything because he got shot. So you were there. So discussing. that kind of ended everything. You know, I was in his neighborhood and, you know, pretty much watching him type of deal, you know, getting so you the feel of everybody. You were investigating if I want to get involved in this or not. No, I was going to get involved in it. No doubt about it. Like on the east side of Detroit, you know, where guys don't have money, or they don't have jobs. That's like a, you know, secondary type of thing. Like, you know. I hear you. And you saw him get shot. And then what happened? After I seen him get shot, I fled the scene to my brother's house, uh, called my mother over there, and she took me on the west side, told her uh, what happened, my immediate family, what was going on, what happened. And, you know, the best thing that we came up with was, you know, we're going to take you to the west side and to everything blow over. And we actually figured this out, you know. So... Was there a house on the west side that other family members lived at? Or? Yeah, it was a house on the west side. My cousin lived at with his three daughters and his fiance. So you moved in with them? I didn't actually move in with them. I kind of spent the night over there. Okay. You know, and the it's like a, of, so it's like a safety thing. So when when there's a shooting like that, a drug related shooting, you know another one's coming back. They don't. You don't just take a shooting. You go back and you return fire. They come back, return fire. This goes on. That's why our numbers get so high in Detroit. There's just this back and forth retaliation. So when something happens, kind of everybody splits okay so your cousin was shot for a drug related something was there gangs related to this or was it just a drug related um crime? i can't really tell you if okay. gangs was involved in it because this was a cousin that i never really um dealt with like that because of the activity that he in because of the direction that i was going in but because of me my desperation i wound up seeking him out and trying to make money to go to school because i knew that being on the east side of Detroit, being a black man, that it's hard. Sure. You know, it's real hard. So my only option was I want to go to school and get out of this neighborhood. So after he was shot, your family took you to the safe side, the west side for the for the time being. And what went on? So you stayed there for a few nights? I did. I actually did stay there for a few nights. But in the process of me staying there a few nights, the guy that actually shot my cousin up, because they was actually cool with each other. Um, they had this strange, like, like relationship, you know, where they'd be with each other, but they'd hurt each other. Do that make sense? Kind of. Like a little brother. It's like a little brother type of thing. Usually it's a noogie on the head, not a <laughs> shotgun or a... Or a uh, 12, 12 shots. 12 shots. So, right, right. So August 6, 2003, uh, according to, to our research, two men... One armed with a carbine rifle fired more than 10 shots at a porch on Park Grove Street in Detroit. And a 26-year-old passerby, Willie Thomas, was killed. Is that true? Correct. Did I say that correctly as far as you, you know? Would that have been a retaliation for the shooting of your cousin? I think that was like a... Um, he didn't know. I don't think the guy knew if my cousin was going to tell on him or not. And it was kind of like, I don't got nothing to lose. Desperation. I'm going to kill everybody type of thing. So... Everybody who ever wronged me type of thing. Like, that's the mentality of a lot of guys, you know. But this was not the same house where your cousin got shot. Was it the same neighborhood? It was in Round the Corner. Round the Corner. Yeah. So, so it could have been related. Um, it was, but it wasn't. 
you know, they, I don't know, like, you never know who a guy beefing with on the street. Like, guy selling drugs, like, if a guy sells drugs on a, on another guy block, he beefing with him. Got it. So you never know really who against each other or what's going on. Like, I wasn't there. I really didn't know these guys. Like I told you, so I re- it's a lot of stuff that I still don't know. Val Newman probably know more than I know about my own case, you know, put it like that. So somebody was killed, Willie Thomas, and two other people were injured that night. Right. August um, 6, 2003. Correct. And... I mean, I have a lot of details here, but I want you to take me through what's your first experience um, with the police after August 3rd, 2003? Okay, so my birthday was on August the 15th. Um, I had a little drugs left over from being with my cousin, so I wound up trying to sell those at like 4 in the morning on August the 15th. Um, I wound up getting arrested for that. Okay. Non-violent crime, I wound up getting arrested for um, intent to sell under 50 grams of crack cocaine. So in the process of me going through court process and everything with this, I get rented out for a murder and arraigned on murder charge. You said rented out? Uh, Ritted out. Ritted. Rit. Rit. Ritted out. Okay, I'm sorry. And so what? when was that? That was um, sometime in the beginning of September. So, so I was about to get out on a dope charge. Right. I was going to get time served and walk right out the door on that. And homicide detective um, Donald Olson, um, I guess the judge at the time me going to court, he had a warrant that was unsigned. And he, he postponed the court date for the drug charge. And actually uh, said that he had to do some investigation on far as this warrant because it was a murder warrant, you know. And by him doing his investigation, I wound up getting the warrant signed and being investigated. And I didn't tell him anything. I told him I didn't know what they was talking about. Did you hear about this shooting? Never heard about it. I was in like never heard about. So who was the first officer you talked to about the shooting? Was it was it this Donald Olson? Right. I got so it. this guy. I mean, this guy sounds like bad news. Yeah. So yeah. is he still on the force? Does anybody know? Uh, he's retired right now. So, I mean, there's a whole backstory here that had nothing to do with you. That that the research showed. So I guess I want to know your understanding, but I have a lot of the facts that went on behind the scenes. So this Luster who was shot. He was one of the two people who were shot. 24-year-old Jamar Luster was shot um, by the shooter. Willie Thomas died, uh, and, and, and Michael Payne was, was wounded. But Jamar Luster uh, thought one of the gunmen he told Donald Olson was named Rob and hung out on Pelkey Street. Did you know that fact? I did. Okay. I did. Do you know who Rob is? Rob is actually my cousin. The one that was shot up? The one that was shot up. The one that couldn't even been there. Well, he was in the hospital, I'm sure. Correct, correct. So, correct. So that's showing mistaken identity right there. Okay. And he was on, so I guess there was two gunmen, Luster said. There was two gunmen. And it was your, he, 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 
thought one of them was a guy and rob was confirmed he was still in the hospital during at the shooting because it was only three days later intensive care okay like, intensive he went care through multiple surgeries for that and the reason he lived is because the guy shot him close and the bullets actually went through instead of expanding like that's why he lived luster also said that about a month earlier a man he knew as e who lived on pelkey street had shot who fired shots at allen's house right is who's allen Allen is the female that, the that was in the residence. Okay, so she actually the didn't get shot, but she was actually one of the um, people involved. But there was another shooting a month earlier. Did you know about that shooting? Did not. That's police records. Like, I would never know anything about that. And I didn't have a private investigator, so, you know, we didn't dig that up or even, you know, go into that enough to even provide a defense for me for that. So, it sounds like the police ruled your cousin out because he was in intensive care and then um there was another man identified as erlin collins who's erlin collins um erlin collins is the guy that actually shot he actually did all the crimes and stuff he erlin collins is the did. one who did them all right and they knew his name early it sounds like right is that your understanding um, I'm not clear. I don't like to speculate okay um, for other people like I wasn't there so I really couldn't attest to that <sighs> So, you know, the articles have shown that Olson, the, the, the detective, said he was acting on a hunch and he found a f photograph of you mm -hmm. um, and took it to Luster's home after he was released from the hospital and showed it to him. And he said, and I'm quote, it looked like the gunman. All right. It's a little bit more detailed than that. Tell me. Um, he actually um, interviewed him at St. John Hospital um, the night he got shot. And he gave him a description of a guy, 5'7", 150, um, named Rob, with the name on there. And then he gave a second description of a guy six foot thin, who we don't know at all. And you're, clear, all you're, you're clearly not 5'7", uh, 150. Right. That's about my size, maybe even a little lighter. Mm -hmm. or a little. That's a little heavier. Um, and the other person doesn't describe you either. Right. And so those descriptions don't work. They don't work, but out of this, out of these descriptions, he said that he went to the ninth precinct, which the crime happens, and just started doing some investigating. Who did Olson did? Olson did, and he just somehow came up with my picture. And do you have any so idea how took, that happened? Do you have any details on how that happened? Um, how he found I'm, your I'm picture? assuming though, because of the August third, which happened with my cousin. I'm assuming that, but why would you take a guy that's a victim? And turn him to a perpetrator, though. Like, that's no... And I'm, every crime I had was nonviolent. You know what I mean? Like, you don't... That's crazy, though. Do you think maybe they thought that Rob got shot, so Rob and his friends and maybe cousin went back to retaliate and shot up another house, even though it was just around the corner? Or that's maybe what was in their mindset when they started trying to figure this out? I can't... Like, how can you try to figure that out when you got a guy that shot a house up a month earlier? Like, what kind of police work is you doing that you put a, a guy that's a victim of a crime, you know, into a perpetrator situation when you already know that the guy shot the house up a month before. Like, that don't make sense to me, though. That don't, though. Well, not, you know? Your whole story, a lot of it doesn't make sense. It don't. So, I, you know, this is kind of a confusing story for those of it you is. watching, listening, and I'm trying to put the pieces together because the story doesn't make a whole bunch of sense mm -hmm. um, because the next piece of research is they arrested you. Correct. 
again as a lawyer almost 30 years this this story so so you have detective uh, detective donald olson who finds an old picture of you somehow we don't know how shows it to jamar luster who while he's in the hospital shows him your picture and says does this guy look familiar and he says it looked like the gunman even though he described the gunman completely differently right do i have that right you have that right Kevin, am I missing anything? Yeah, yet? no, uh, no, no. At this point, no physical evidence at all. Just a, a, an identification through a picture, but a luster, possible but, identification. But at the same time, luster in the police report described the shooters as a black man around twenty six or twenty seven, five seven, around one hundred and fifty pounds. And the first report was he was unable to describe the other gunman. So, you you're not even close to five seven or one hundred and fifty pounds. Ever, since you, were, since you were probably eight years old, right? I mean, <laughs> so so the description, and then the act, and then they looked like. So we have a bad description and a looked like, mm-hmm. and they arrested you on that. Correct. Correct. Did you even own a gun? I did. I did. So there was no need for me to own. So a gun. what was like your arrest do, date? What do was, you know if the Do you know if the shootings were in the media? Was this like one of those uh, the TV people are talking about? There's a lot of pressure on the police to find somebody to convict somebody, or was this one of those shootings where oh there was a shooting this weekend? Um, I can't begin to understand because the same gun that was used on my cousin, which was a carbine right rifle, right was the same gun that was used at the crime. Like, this is so simple now that I can look back. And I'm like, come on now, if y'all could have got these shells from over here and put these shells over here, like, that's simple police work. Like, that don't make no sense. That's simple police work. So you told me you were, when were you arrested? What was the date, do you know? I was arrested on August the 16th, 2003 on an unrelated charge. Oh, that was on the drug charge? Right. Okay, so when we were arrested for the, um, oh, that was the 918. While in lockup. Date? While in lockup. Right. Yeah. While, while he's so, waiting to get out on the drug charges. Right. He's so I think charged they, with the. I think, really think they just rushed to get a warrant signed and they pushed it through just so I wouldn't come home and get back free. So that's my idea of that. That's the only thing that I can come up with that even kind of makes sense, you know. So September 18, 2003, you're arrested. I assume you couldn't afford an attorney, so they appointed one to you? Yes, I did. I did have an appointed attorney. And what was his name? Uh, I'm not sure. Like, um, during that, far as, like, with the drug case, right, I had two different attorneys. Like, with the drug case, I just completely put that out of my mind. I plead, I basically feel like I was, I was forced to plead guilty on that. Because I got a murder, like, I got a murder trial, and I'm being convicted with murder. So like, who, why, why even worry about a dope case? I'm, 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 I'm hearing you. You had to set some pri- priorities. But who was your, who was the lawyer who handled the murder case? Um, Lyle B. Harris. Lyle B. Harris. Correct. And he was court appointed. Correct. And I see the reason I'm asking because I saw motions that uh, you you filed for ineffective assistance of counsel mm-hmm. that he didn't do a very good job at trial. Do you think Correct. he did you think he did a good job for you at trial? No, I, there's no way he could have no investigation. Like that's pretty much speak for itself. Like my case is complex. It got a whole lot of different turns in. And I just really think that a solid private investigator could have helped out a lot. 
Did and he, he's helped me provide me with a defense. Like just did, me not being there, that's not a good enough defense. You gotta have some evidence to support that. Like I had three alibi witnesses, uh, my cousin, his fiance, and her mother that was babysitting the kids because my cousin fiance worked at the hospital. So she was actually getting like childcare checks to um, babysit her kids, you know, while they was there. So that's three adults and three kids that was there. And they never testified, right? I told my lawyer about the alibi witnesses, and it's like he never investigated it. And these are the people who you were staying with on the west side? These are the people where I was, you know, hiding out. Not hiding out, but, you know, that I was kind of like, you know, figuring things out. Did you own a car at the time? I didn't own a car You didn't have a car, didn't have a gun, and this is several, several miles away. Correct. And so you're saying there was the night of this shooting, or the time when the... When the August 6th shooting, you were on the west side at the house with all those people you just trying mentioned. Trying to figure it out. Trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure out how I was going about this process. Um, this is something that I've never been into, and I just wanted to do the right thing. Like, I didn't want to get myself in further trouble. Like, I really wanted to do the right thing, though. How, how do you know you were, what time did the shooting happen? Um, according to the records, the shooting happened like 1 or 2 in the morning. And how are you 100% certain that you were home on the west side with these people? Were you sleeping? Were you home? Yeah, How do you know? Yeah, we was locked in. It's like kids in the house. Like this, you know, I was locked in man, okay. pretty much that time. And before trial, before preliminary exam, you told Lyle Harris, your attorney, that these people were alibi witnesses. Correct. Did he ever meet with them before trial? He didn't. I actually postponed my final conference because I wanted him to put my alibi witness on there because I looked at the sheet. And it said zero witnesses, like I told him, and we had to postpone my final conference. And what did he say? Oh, man, 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 man. He was basically just saying, we don't need them, and we can go forth without them. And he, I don't know, in his mind, I guess he thought that we could have won or something. Like, I can't figure that out for him. So he never or talked to I don't to know him. if I was just rushed through, like. Well, really, this is a very, yeah, I mean, we'll, yeah, we'll talk about that. Was, We're not even at trial yet, but he didn't interview the alibi witnesses. He didn't call him for your preliminary exam. He didn't call him at trial. Um, I had an alibi witness at trial. Like, I actually went that far to tell my brother and mother, I was like, look, I need them to be at trial so that we can make this stuff easier for him. For the lawyer. For the lawyer. So you're helping the and lawyer. He still never investigate him. Like, he still didn't say, hold on, your honor, let me talk to these people. And then he was saying that he would have had to put the alibi witnesses on the final conference, and he never did that. Do you know if you waived the preliminary hearing? I mean, no, this case should have got tossed at the preliminary. Anything. Did you get a preliminary exam? I did get Who's a preliminary the judge? exam. Now. Um I don't want to speculate right now. I really don't. Okay. I don't, I don't Do you know who your judge. trial judge was? My trial judge was Annette J. Berry. All right. So, so she's the one who actually eventually exonera exonerated you. Yes, sir. She did. So I know Judge Berry. Um, she's now at Wayne County Circuit Court. Mm -hmm. She she was on the criminal bench for many years. Right. At, right at Recorder's Court. Right. So... Ooh. Your trial date was December 3rd, 2003. I mean, this is uh, three, four months almost to the day after the, the murder. I mean, that is quick. 
And then guess what? That's not it. Like my lawyer only came and seen me like two times before final conference when I had the when issue. When you were in jail. When I had the issue with him about the final conference and before trial. Like we got receipts. Like how many how many minutes? I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful though, you know. Well, I know you're grateful and we're yeah. gonna get there and you should be grateful. And right. I'm I'm grateful uh for you. Mm-hmm. And but let's get through this story. Okay. I mean how you can be grateful, I want to talk to you about too. Mm-hmm. But let's let's for the listeners and the viewers, let's try to get through this. So October, uh, December 3rd, 2003, you have a three-day trial in front of Annette Berry in recorder's court, and you had a you had a lawyer by the name of Lyle Harris who saw you two times before trial. Correct. And how many minutes each time did he spend with you? It had to be like 20, 30 minutes each time. I mean, Kevin... It was more so of going over paperwork. Like, it really wasn't... It's, it's, I mean, it's it hard like to imagine when you're sitting here talking about it. But, in, in, like, in, in, in the real world out there, though, it's the it's the busiest courtroom in America. They have more people moving in and out of there. And it's it's sad. And it's tragic. And that's why they have a unit now at the prosecutor's office to go back and look at all these cases. Because they were just... They were running people through quickly. And there's some concern that police were... Arrest somebody you know don't don't worry about it they, 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 you know there used to be this kind of attitude like well they they did something wrong don't worry about it they're they're drug dealers they're they live in this neighborhood they did something wrong let's go let's move them along let's close some cases and they'd get to court and you know you'd have prosecutors who would look at this stuff and they would take the word of the police officer you know so this investigator is over there saying hey no we got it all covered right. it's good and, and the prosecutor has you know a bunch of cases the judge has a bunch of cases i mean it's just it's it's hard to picture like you know you think you just go and there's this whole american justice system and we're gonna find out what happened but it doesn't always work that way who was the prosecutor the lead prosecutor at that time uh 2003 mike duggan mike duggan yeah. i saw him last night yeah he signed off on my paperwork too and i've been trying to get a meeting with him it's been kind of hard but you know i want to talk to him about a few things i bet you do yeah yeah (laughs) he might need some bodyguards in the room um that's a joke i know um (laughs) so so you know what i was going to say those two meetings you had for 20 to 30 minutes you know for a for a routine auto accident case in my office we spend 90 minutes preparing somebody talking to them explaining them about a deposition which is not even remotely as important as to what you were going through. The fact that your lawyer didn't take this seriously, didn't spend the time with you, didn't prepare you for it is mind blowing. And he told me he had another trial. Like he was like, your honor, I got another trial coming up after this. Like right after my, like they're already pretty much presumed that my trial wouldn't be long. Like, we didn't have any witnesses at all. Like, no witness. Basically, he just in there cross-examining. And that's Sounds crazy. like by the seat yeah, of his pants. He just cross-examining. And Lisa Lindsley, Pitbull, man, she's a true. Who was that? that was Lisa tr- Lindsley. That was the uh, prosecutor. Yeah, she's right. their top prosecutor still. still. I mean, when there's a big case, Lisa's yeah. on it. Yeah. So and let's talk about that when we get to to the ultimate story. Um, so the trial was quick. Did you Did you testify? I didn't testify. Did you have a discussion with your lawyer whether you should or whether you shouldn't? 
I did, I did, but his whole his whole ideology was because I had broken into a store like at four o'clock in the morning trying to get money. Same. How thing. many years ago before this? Um, that was actually like a month prior to this. I actually tried to do that first, and then I was like, I got to get some money to get out of here. So that was on your record. So it is on my record. So you had right a B and E, and you business. had and you had a drug conviction. Correct. And he was afraid if you testified that those two things would he come. He said up. my credibility would look shaky. Right. No. So, well, whether true or not true, just for listeners and viewers, he was concerned that they would ask you questions about that and the judge and jury would probably be prejudiced by that information and find you guilty or would think you were more likely or not than not guilty because you had a couple prior crimes. Right? Right. That's what you were probably explained. And he said, if you don't go on the stand, that information doesn't come up. So those two prior convictions didn't come up in your trial, did they? They didn't. They okay. Didn't. So, but they're nonviolent though. Like, why wouldn't you want a guy that's convicted of murder to testify on his own behalf? What type of you know? Well, I don't get you, that. You bring up a good point. Um, you're you're sitting in jail for th four months, going to be knowing that you're going to be tried on a murder charge where you were nowhere near the crime scene. You had three alibi witnesses. What was going through your mind as you're sitting there for those four months in Wayne County jail? A lot. It describe a lot it, describe it for me. Mind. I was just trying to learn the law. I was in the law library and I was trying to, you know, take a, a fast course in the law and it just, it couldn't happen and I couldn't preserve my rights properly. You know, and that happened to a lot of guys. Like last thing we think is we're gonna be in a, a court setting with our life hanging over our head. Like my life seriously was hanging over my head. Like I got natural life and two counts of twenty to forty, along with felony firearm. So. So were you scared? Extremely, extremely scared. Like extremely scared. I mean, I can't imagine what that what that feels like. I mean. Were you, I could I mean, were you yelling and screaming to everybody who'd listened that you're innocent and you had nothing to do with this? At the, at the time, I just kind of wanted to see what justice was going to take it. I always believed that, you know, my faith in God was extremely strong and I always believed that God wouldn't put nothing on me that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't take. And one thing I knew that if did nobody believe that I didn't commit that crime, I know that God believed that. And I just pray hard, like I really pray hard. You know, you know it, it goes to show you what, what a good lawyer can do for you. For sure. I mean, you know, you hear that all the time, that the, 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 the justice system isn't fair and it favors the rich or people who can afford attorneys. Because had you had a good attorney, you would have had better evidence. You know, you would have been counseled whether you should have testified. Um, those other crimes might have it been got suppressed. Out, I guess. Yeah, I mean, think about think about a case. Exam. Think think about a case where a spotlight is put on how police investigated. You know, you've seen them OJ, for instance, where they look at every little thing. I mean, if they looked at any little thing in this case, they would have said, "Well, there's there's we no the there's right no." Th correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron. There's no physical evidence that connected you to the crime. None. No DNA. None. No fingerprints. No nothing. Nothing. You had a nothing. very shaky incorrect id correct by a detective who who didn't give him six choices of photos or eight photos what they're supposed to do i don't correct. know why that id didn't get thrown out you know they showed you one it didn't picture. get thrown out because 
when they seen that they couldn't like get me as being the, the slimmer guy, six foot thin, they went and put me on Rob. And they tried to attach the independent basis to that. And that's what they held me um, on appeal. All them 15 years, I fought saying that I'm not Rob. Like, this guy know who Rob is, and he said that I wasn't Rob. So I was in there trying to attack, attack the uh, suppression of the identification. So and the courts didn't listen to me. Like, the Court of Appeals, Supreme Court, like, they just rubber snapped me, and they didn't listen to me. And it held claimed, up, which is another yeah. problem. So three days of trial... You're convicted on two counts, and literally a month later, you're sentenced to what you described as life, two counts of life, Correct. natural life. Correct. And when the jury came back with guilty, I mean, did you, did, let me back up. When the jury's go, when the trial's going on for those three days, did you feel, did you still feel that the truth was going to come out. God was going to protect you and that you, that justice was going to be done. Did you have any confidence while you were sitting there or did you know as it was going on that, that, that the case was not going well? What, what was going on through your head there? Uh, after I got found guilty, I went straight into um, preserve mode. But before that, during those three day trial, mm-hmm. do you remember how you were feeling? I felt the worst I ever felt. So did you think, did you know this lawyer was doing a crappy job? I did. So you're sitting here watching know. your life pass before you that this, that, that, that you had some lawyer who didn't really care about you, didn't prepare, didn't do his homework, didn't spend the time he needed to do, and you saw it going bad. I seen it going bad, but this guy had such a winnable case. I still thought how bad he done. I still thought that we could have won, though. Like, we still could have won. How many jurors was there? 12 jurors? Correct. And and the prosecutor convinced 12 jurors, because it has to be unanimous, that you were guilty of this, even though you clearly weren't. Correct. Have you talked to any of these jurors since then? Haven't, haven't tried to reach out to none of them. Okay, I was just curious. So you get sentenced in January 2004, and one thing that I think is really interesting, Joanne Thomas, sister of Willie Thomas. Willie Thomas is the man who was killed on August 3rd, 2003. She testified, quote, in my heart, I don't feel Aaron Salter is the shooter. I just don't feel that. They got the wrong guy. I don't think he's the person that shot my brother. It wasn't Aaron Salter. End quote. Were you sitting there when she said that? I was. I was. And what did the judge say or how did she react? The judge reacted just cold-hearted. It was heartless to me. Doesn't uh, he, The judge doesn't have any any anything to do at that point you've, you've been convicted of murder you're, right. you've, you're sentenced automatically to life she has guidelines right she has guidelines yes mandatory. It's mandatory life you're right um i'm just curious if she reacted that's strong that's a strong uh plea to to the to the judge saying this is the wrong man do you did you have anything okay let me ask this question did you do you know how she got to her got to court who asked her to come talk did anybody talk to her your family your lawyer to the victim? To, to the victim's sister. Do you know how that no, happened? We, no, we didn't actually um, talk to her at that time. But one thing that the judge did bring out, because she asked her, how did she know that? Okay. 
And you know like families They deal a lot with the neighborhood The neighborhood don't particularly talk to the police So the neighborhood And everybody And they grew up in that neighborhood They told her like that ain't the right guy And they told her who actually did it Was the guy named E She said the guy named E killed her brother She said that on the record to the judge On the record I mean, that's a fascinating part the, of the story. I wonder if the prosecutor called it. Usually, you know, the family, the victim's family has a chance to come and face the the convicted and, and at but sentencing. And you're all your years of covering I've never murders, seen something like that. that usually the, the family's the family happy. Comes in, the family comes in and They're, says. They want some closure. Absolutely. They got right. the right guy. They're right. happy. I've, I, even on TV shows, on, on all the datelines that I've watched, all the murder shows, you know, this is four months, five months after the crime that her brothers was killed. And also there that day were the actual uh, witnesses, Aaron's witnesses, to his alibi. They were in the courtroom that day. <laughs> they weren't there. They, you know, they never testified about the alibi, but they were sitting in the courtroom. Did they come knowing- up and talk to the judge during sentencing? Which part? The alibi witnesses? Yes. Like, we don't really know the law like that. And the thing is... When you a black man, you want to seem less threatened. I'm already in on a murder case. Like, I wanted to be professional. I didn't want to seem threatening to the jury. You know, my family the same way. Like, we always raised the same way. But during sentencing, you must have been going crazy in your head. I was. I was. And your family knew it because they were with you that night. Correct. I, I, I... was your attorney saying, "Hey, we're going to get this on appeal. This this is garbage conviction. We're going to get on appeal," or were you just sitting there saying, "Oh my God, my life's over. I'm going to prison for the rest of my life." Um, I didn't say that because I had Joanne Thomas. Like I always knew that I had hope because I had heard like the victim's sister said I didn't do it. Now I felt that we can respond from that, you know, and it was a good thing though. And you testified, or you spoke to the judge on sentencing day, telling Correct. her that you were innocent. Correct. And telling her that, um, it, it, you said if nobody was actually there, um, and that the, all the evidence was hearsay, you thought you were gonna that justice was gonna prevail, basically. And she, she heard you, but did she say anything back to you? Um, she didn't. She didn't. I just got out of there. You know, they got me out of there because I was frustrated. Uh, were you yelling? And I was and screaming sad or? because of my family. I was sad because my family had to sit there and watch that. My brother. Um, he was so upset he like slammed the door because they knew where I was at like that's different when you know that there's no way that your brother your son your cousin could commit a crime and they just being railroad like that was like a hanging man that was similar to like a hang a lynching modern day lynching man I it yeah. The story is is it must have remarkable. been like an outer body experience for you or something like you're just watching this thing happen to you. I don't know. And at the same time, trying to remain composed for the family, for his family, and and, and for himself. Right. I mean, rather than screaming, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, although he did stand up and say it. Right. Your first appeal was ineffective assistance of counsel, which the Court of Appeals denied. Um, did you have a lawyer for that one? Did, did the I had a court-appointed appellate counsel. And that person... All basically all he did was look at my transcripts, write issues down, and basically went on about his business after I got denied from the Court of Appeals. So I basically, you know, went the rest of the way on my own. You know, I had to learn the law, 
preserve the law and everything. And then in 2006, you filed your own motions in federal court for a writ of habeas corpus? Correct. And that got denied? No, it didn't get denied. I actually got appointed counsel. 2008, the Federal Defender's Office was appointed to help you. Attorney Jonathan Epstein, later joined by Lauren Kogali and Colleen Fitzharris. But guess, guess, this, 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 this was going to be the real crazy part, though. Guess who gave me my counsel? Patrick J. Duggan, Mike Duggan's father. Federal judge. Federal judge gave me counsel to represent me appointed federal defender office to appoint is that optional i mean didn't he have to do that but i mean you're saying the coincidence is crazy i i, I don't know enough about the federal defender program um but why are you saying it's so crazy because federal like when you're on a writ of habeas corpus that's your last opportunity that's not right. no opportunity to be hiring a lawyer or appointing counsel unless you actually see that injustice didn't occur and that don't usually happen like, so you know. but lawyers jonathan epstein kogali and fitzharris i mean these were some of your champions right right they they are the ones who eventually helped get it to the position where you were going to get released absolutely so 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 these great lawyers um started putting the pieces back together started doing a real investigation, uh, started filing motions in front of, I assume, Judge Barry with sworn affidavits from the alibi witnesses and other uh, witnesses. And um, did judge, were you there for that motion hearing when they argued that in front of Judge Barry? Were you there? No, no, not with the motions. Okay, now that was Judge Barry still? It was. Okay, it they was. Didn't, okay. She denied it. And then in 2013... After you've been sitting in prison for 13 years, not 13, 10 years, almost 10 years, you took a polygraph. Right. Who asked you to take the polygraph? Your lawyers? Um, I originally, like when I got convicted, I originally wrote a, a letter to the judge telling her, like Annette Berry, I tried to file my own motion of reconsideration. And I told her that it wasn't me. I told her that I'll take a polygraph, whatever test that you need me to take, like to prove that it wasn't me. Like, but this, this is was ten, wrong. But this is a long time after the conviction. It is. Did no, but have, I told her that right then, like right as soon as there? I got convicted. Well, did you tell your lawyer that in the beginning? I did. And he didn't arrange one for you or didn't no, say that's did. an option. And because you know what? They cost money. Right. And they, you were, you were. An you over, were, overburdened system. You were. You were in a yeah. You were in the system that that does, didn't hire private investigators like you mentioned. Right. Doesn't hire out five hundred a thousand dollar. However, how much mm -hmm. polygraphs cost? Maybe even more. Right. So those motions were denied, and you had an affidavit from Erlen Collins, a prison inmate, who said he was aware of the shooting, and that you were not involved. Was Erlen Collins actually the shooter? That, that's he who was. the sister that's thought e. was. Okay, that's e. Do you think that was the shooter? That's E. Yeah, that's E. That's E. That's like e. Earl and Stead short so, for E. So yeah. why would the shooter... And you met him in prison. Oh, wait a minute. He was in prison. Yeah. So what, yeah, we'll talk about that. that. That's an interesting part of the story. But the fact that the real shooter gave you an affidavit... Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. But he didn't that's admit, not he even... He didn't admit to being the real shooter. But before but that... He, still, uh, I he mean, said, I know you, who, he wasn't. Who... who contacted Earl Collins and who convinced him to sign an affidavit? 
he convinced himself to sign one. Like he did, you type it up. Who typed it up for him? He typed his own stuff up for him. Like he actually seen what I was going through in, in prison. Like Which I was prison losing did you my see family. Him? I seen him at Oaks, and then I was at Carson City with him. I was with him two different times. Now is this the guy you got in a fight with at one point? No, I didn't get into. Was a that fight a different guy? Had to be because I, I got I got information about a fight. All right, we'll we'll see if we get to that. So. Okay. Did you become friends with E? I became all right with him. See, the thing with me was always my innocence. You know what I'm saying? So I talked to many people that was from the east side in that neighborhood. Like, I had to solve my own murder. Like, how you going to solve your own murder when you don't talk to the guy that actually did it? It's like Shawshank Redemption uh, a little bit. He was in there trying to figure out and get witnesses, remember? Right. They started killing, killing people who had information, the crazy warden in that case. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a movie. It I is. can't believe what it happened is. to you here. And and so so E types up an affidavit. Does he hand it to you and you hand it to your lawyer? I mean, is that No, he actually I actually give him my lawyer's um information and he actually sent it directly to my lawyer. So um, you have uh, access to do that in prison. You have access to email like affidavits or send affidavits or whatever. No, he mailed it the he old mailed way. It. Yeah, so which lawyer way. he sent it to the to the Epstein crew? Correct. And um, so your lawyers filed motions based on the polygraph as well as an affidavit from E who said you were not involved. That motion was denied. And the victim, like you forgetting that Jamar Luster actually recanted in 2009. And that's what the person who gave the first, uh, picture who said this right. picture looks who, like him. Who did he, he recant said, to? Sure. Who did he recant to? He recanted to our private investigator. When I got appointed the federal defender's office, they basically went over everything with a fine tooth comb and including to go back to re-interview the, the old witnesses. And what he said that he was never sure that Aaron Salter was the shooter. He only said that I looked it like the shooter. And that's a big difference. Like looked it like a person and being a person like anybody know that's two different things, you know. Yeah. Not properly identified. So Luster <laughs> so, so Luster's now this, saying it. Um even with this is even, this is this the same as judge? Is this still Judge same Barry? Same judge. Um didn't accept it. Didn't accept I don't know it. how much more I you went at the that polygraph. Point. That's when we started pursuing the polygraph and then interviewing like Earl Collins and all of that. That's when we just start like we just going to preserve everything, hold in the bands and we're going to get everything to the federal courts because we're not getting a fair shake, you know, with the state. man. But as it turns out, the federal courts didn't save you. The Wayne County Prosecutor's Office saved you. The federal courts, though, even though they didn't save me, they allowed me to hold in advance and have an option if the conviction integrity unit, you know what I mean? Like, I still had appeal and, going on. Well, they, okay, I, they did save you because they gave you great lawyers. Correct, correct. So let's take back my prior, prior statement. They, and, and they postponed they, the, the process in federal court, so they, they gave them an opportunity the appeal, to come get back the to The appellate it. process. Right. They put that in abeyance, work your way through the state system. If this doesn't work, you can come back to the federal system and exhaust your appeals there. Right. Correct. 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 Okay. Correct. So in the last two years, or I think it was actually four years ago, Wayne County Prosecutor's Office set up a victim a conviction integrity unit led by Valerie Newman, who I've recently met with. 
what an impressive woman she is. Okay, let me just start by saying that. She's a former def- criminal defense attorney for the public defender's office. Um, cares as much about these types of things as anybody as I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And she works inside the prosecutor's office. Now, I know that there's 60 of these around the country. This is actually one of the first. It's actually one of the most successful ones in the Correct. country. Correct. They have, I think, seven to date. Other units have zero. Most have zero or one. Like this is an amazing, amazing unit. And they are looking backwards to, I mean, like I told her this when I met her and I'm, I'm saying this out loud now, the prosecutor who prosecuted him is still on the job. Another prosecutor in the same department is re-looking at it and making a recommendation to Kim Worthy that I think we got the wrong guy. She, Kim Worthy is the one who actually makes the final decision there's no court involved in this. Do, no. Are you aware of this, Kevin? Oh yeah, there's no, no I, court I involved. Closely, yeah. yeah. It's so there, it's so sad that there's innocent, no motions it's anymore. It's really sad that innocent people get convicted. Mm. It's it's tragic that people go to jail when they didn't commit a crime. But many around the country would stay there because they don't have a prosecutor's office that that is willing to put their own right. kind of reputation on the line by saying we're going to go back and look. If we made mistakes, we're going to have to right. own up. The to word them. is integrity. Yeah, and the fact that Kim Worthy is such a, such a stand-up person that she hired Valerie Newman to set up this department, and they don't have enough employees. Correct. And they don't have enough people working for them. Correct. They need probably 100. She has a few. She has maybe 10 or 15. She's doing a great job with, with, with what she has. But the fact that, that they're willing to look at this stuff and say, yep, we made a mistake. Mm-hmm. So your, your lawyers, the ones I've mentioned a couple of times, got... Uh, Valerie Newman's attention in March of 2018. It summarized all the things that that we just talked about, the weak nature of Luster's identification, the statement that he wasn't sure, the polygraph, I'm sure. Um, The letter also talked about um, the gun and where it took place and Clark identifying Collins as E and all of this kind of stuff. the missed uh, identification in the original identification. And she opened it up and she opened up the case. And um, on August 15, 2018, um, Valerie Newman, along with your lawyers, presented a uh, dismissal dismissal paperwork to the same judge who heard all this stuff, Judge Annette Berry, and asked that your case be dismissed. Thankfully, Judge Berry granted the motion. Thank you. And you were released on August 15, 2018. On my 36th birthday. Wow. Yeah. Talk about a birthday present. And the first day you were arrested was... I bet you, I I can't, uh, I bet you the celebration that night was pretty fun. Yeah, we had a nice barbecue (laughs) with my family. So... I mean, take me through like this is this is a pretty um, remarkable thing. So, so from March of 2018, when they first sent the letter to Valerie Newman to August, that's only five months. Correct. And she does have a backlog. When I met with her, she has so many cases. There are so many. You know, the interesting thing is there are so many people who claim they're innocent. She's getting I don't remember the numbers, but it's I'm sure it's way more than hundreds of people saying I'm innocent. And one of the things I remember her telling me, and this is true for a lot of the um, integrity units around the country, that 
I found interesting. The person, they won't look at these cases unless the person has maintained their innocence from day one, right? So it's not somebody who, you know, if somebody admits to something or apologizes or takes responsibility, they will never get through this, get, never get to this point. Right. I mean, these are for people who are truly, truly innocent. And that's one thing, because that's one way, easy way to weed it out. Right. If somebody pled guilty, they're not looking at those. If somebody, you know, apologized or somebody admitted to something, they're not looking at those. They're looking at the people who maintain their innocence from day one through the end. And you did for the for the fifteen years you were you were locked up, you maintained your innocence. Correct. So I mean, what did that feel like? Were you in court when the judge dismissed the case? I wasn't. Um I actually wanted her to do it faster, so I actually signed waived my right to appear. So it would have taken so extra I just time. Got straight out from the prison from um URF in the upper peninsula, Kitchelow, Michigan. Okay. Right. And so you so you got news? Did you get a phone call? I did. Who called did. you? Um, my lawyer called me. Which one? Um, Jonathan Epstein. What Colleen. What he said. Tell me about that conversation. Oh, that was that was huge. That was really huge. Um, he said we did it, you know. And my mother and father was coming to get me. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. How'd you feel? felt great because you know my mother and father wasn't together for a long time you know and just seeing them coming together and me bringing them together you know that was a lot you know? so they drove up to the up yeah they drove up and came and got me you know, the warden apologized to my mother everything so that was deep you know that was deep because at the end of the day when you wrongfully convicted all you want is people to recognize that you didn't do that like, you don't want something on you that you didn't do. And that just validated that, you know, I got my life back, you know. And that people won't look at you as a monster. Because in prison, people look at you for the crime. You know, they don't care about if you fighting a pill or none of that. They just like, this guy in here for murder. He never going home. And they treat you like that. And they treat you like that. And it's just sad, you know, real sad. And what a guy had to go through to prove his innocence in prison. Now, he got to fight the inmates. He got to fight the guards to get to the law library. He got to fight with himself, dealing with his family. You know, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, I can see the yeah. emotions pouring out of you, and right. and I'm I, I'm I'm speechless, and and I'm I'm so sorry that the system failed you, and I I feel so much compassion and that this has got to change it does it does it really does you can't there's a lot of people that's getting like you're not like when they put me in prison they put my whole family in prison because they knew i didn't do it and they out here fighting and scratching with money they don't even have trying to help me like that's the worst thing in the world you know i mean the way you just described those 15 years right. of of the the fighting and the because i you're right the, these you know, these you're with other murderers. You're not a murderer, but you're with some bad people. Correct. And they assume. I mean, I assume. Does everybody assume in there that everybody did it? I don't think that even matters when you're in there. Whether you've done it or not, you're doing the time. You know. So that's not with the inmates. That don't really matter though. 
but to so but they're treating you rough and you're treating them rough yeah yeah i gotta treat them rough i gotta treat them rough because i got a family to go home to so in those 15 years you just answered the question but i'm gonna ask you anyway did you have hope had hope the whole time i never but after 15 years what gave you hope why did you think that this was going to work out because i believed in joanne thomas like you know that she was everything um i feel like if i had one person on my team the that sister I can make of the it. victim you th- so did you co- correspond with her during those 15 years i actually didn't i was too busy um doing my law work i kind of wanted to leave it leave it out away from her because of what she went through like she just saying her brother they was close and they got murdered and then i'm the guy that even though she don't think that i did it like that still got to be when on you talking to a guy that's convicted of your brother's murder you know so i just kind of wanted to get everybody space and just do what i can do for myself you know have you seen her since you've been out i have i actually have yeah yep. i went over her house seeing her and her family it was great were they happy for you extremely happy she's happy about everything that i'm doing and she's just a big supporter though did know? they did they ever convict anybody for that murder um they didn't they didn't convict it but so the guy who you think did it e he's in prison for something else yeah he's doing like 30 to 60 years and you're for pretty, related or something that's related to that guns type thing and you're pretty convinced that he was the actual shooter yeah and yeah. he actually didn't tell you but he told you no he actually told me that he committed the crime he didn't tell my lawyer because he does have an out date Okay, so, I missed that part. So right. he admitted to you that he did it. Did, Correct. I mean, did you just want to, I don't know, throw him up against the wall and say, tell the I really world, don't, you're I already really, in here. Right. I know I know it's it's strange, but I really, some some strange reason, I really don't feel that it's his fault. Like, if police would have did the real police work, I would have never been in that situation. Like, why would I hate him? For doing what he do. You know, that's his life. He can do what he wants to with his life. And in his own little way, he's almost helping now. He's, he's coming forward trying to say, look, I, I know you didn't do it. If there's some small part I can do, I don't want to jam myself up with right. more time, but if there's some little thing I can do to help. I mean, the fact that he had a conscience. There, he had a conscience. Yeah, and you're, I mean, geez, to imagine a day or a week in prison, let alone your birthdays are clicking by, your mother's birthdays are clicking by, Christmas, holidays, whatever it is, it's all clicking by. And somehow you managed to keep this hope. Something like that would be like another i think piece of hope to like all right maybe we're gonna get there finally. so what else helped what else helped you you know get through those 15 years i mean did you did you find god more than you had god did you um was it the law was it was it what were you reading what i mean what was what was keeping you sane see the basic thing was when i got found guilty and i was going through all my troubles i kind of lost my faith in god like i just he wasn't for me like I never really had a personal relationship with him but I just decided then and there like he wasn't for me and I struggled you know years with that and I just you know found all type of help I started reading self-help books I started studying studying every religion that it was from Buddhism to more science temple of America to nation to Christianity and I just took all of those, the best thing out of all those religions, and I just tried to put it in myself. You know, and that's how I, I, I got through that. 
Good for you. And working out and relieving frustration. Sure. And doing things like that. But So looking back, you know, there was a lot of failures in this system. Not just one. A rogue detective, Donald Olson. Ineffective assistance of counsel. Judges who didn't, who just, as Kevin said, rubber stamped the motions that they hear all the time. I'm sure they get, every conviction, they get dozens of motions, right? So they get jaded, I'm sure. Right. They rubber stamp it from the trial court to the Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court, I'm sure. I mean... Somewhere somebody's supposed to, a gatekeeper's supposed to raise their hand and say, hey, this doesn't look great. Let's go take a look at this. Let's stop and go talk to a witness or go back, circle back prosecutor or police officer or somebody. They're, along the way, there's supposed to be all these little spots that stop somebody from wrongfully being convicted. I mean, that's, that's, of course. The, that's the biggest crime in our justice system if someone is wrongfully convicted. So that's why they have all these little gatekeepers along the way, and all of them missed it. Just missed it, missed it, missed it, missed it, missed it. Missed it. You know, but the biggest, being a lawyer, I'm thinking it's the lawyer's fault, of course. There's other faults. I mean, the sure. police department, for sure. the judicial. But as a lawyer, I'm really unhappy with how this lawyer handled your trial. I can't, I'm stuck on how fast it went through. An auto case takes five times longer than right. a murder case. Right. Like, come on. But how many other people is this happening to? How many, what's your gut? How many people are sitting in there who are, who are wrongfully convicted? What's your, what's your gut? You know, because I actually been in there with them guys in law libraries. Like, you could tell the guys that's really innocent. All you got to do is look at the law library law. Because the guys that's actually got something that they fighting for and got something going on back home, like, they in them law libraries and they fighting hard. Like, they stand on them appeals. They keeping their appeals alive and everything. And I just, oh, my God, man. And that's why I'm doing everything I can. It's a fight. It's truly a fight. Because I couldn't even get an evidentiary hearing. Like an evidentiary hearing would have cleared a lot of these things up, like particularly with the victim, far as him saying that it looked like me. Like we could have decided right there in the evidentiary hearing, right? Well, that should have been decided at the preliminary exam. For sure. Or, or at least at the trial. At the very end, the prosecutor right. said this was a, a very or extremely weak identification at, at the end when they, when they let him out. So... Kim Worthy's office, again, did a stand-up job. She made statements in your case. Her statement was, it has been determined that the case against Mr. Salter was based primarily on mistaken identification by the main witness in the case. She went on to say the system failed him. Nothing I can say will bring back the years of his life spent in prison. Justice is truly being served today. When you heard those words for the first time, how did you feel? Um, I actually didn't hear them words. Um... You know, I was too busy getting released or whatever, so. Have you heard him before I just read him? I have. I've seen him in writing, you know, and, but and, I never and, really And your heard tears him. are flying out, falling out of your face and when right, you heard those right, words. Right. So how do you, I mean. Yeah, that's emotional, though, you know, from a person, like, losing his life and thinking he's going to die in prison. Like, I've seen a lot of people died when I was in prison. It was a guy just jogging on the track, 36 years old, and before I came home, he just fell out and died. And the guards, they just took their time getting him help. Like, they could have saved that guy. He had, like, a heart attack or something? 
I couldn't tell you, you know, like a lot of things they keep closed out from prisoners. You know what I mean? All I know is, you know, he fell out jogging, fell out, and they couldn't get him back up. Mm. And he passed away. Yeah, it's a lot of real stuff. It's a lot of real stuff um, going on in prison. Like, it's still lives going on. That's a lot of real stuff, you know, that the guy see in there. So, when you got out, you know, there's there's a law in Michigan that says you're entitled to uh, money for these type of things, and you had to file a, a lawsuit to get it. A claim. A claim. A claim. Right. So Wicked claim. I didn't know you had to file a lawsuit for it. I thought you could just make the claim. Right. I'm not familiar with okay, that. My so, lawyer take care of So, your that, lawyer took so. care of that. You got your money. Right. And um, that was... That was soon after you got out? No, it was like maybe like seven, six, seven months. Six, seven months after. Okay, but you you got your money, which, and how was, I mean, how did, how did you, how did society treat you? How did you react to getting back with your family back into the day-to-day? Take me through that. Is there, is there um, any? It's still a, it's still a, a huge struggle, um. It's still a huge struggle, though, because a lot of people know they're supposed to have been there for me when I was locked up. Like, you know, that wasn't there. Well, you knew who you, you, you found out who your true friends and right, family were. Right, we found out a lot, a lot, you know, during that process, you know. But are there systems, I don't mean processes, but I mean, are there, are there organizations when somebody gets out who was wrongfully convicted or people who just get out of prison after serving their time, are there organizations that, were there to help you? Of course not. Like no, no, wasn't. If I would, I would, I would have so had got some help. So tell me about the help you needed. What was what were your biggest struggles when you got out? Um, for one, my biggest struggle was housing. Um, I didn't have any housing. Um, I didn't have a job um, to provide for myself to pay simple bills like telephone bill and you know things like that a guy need when he get out i didn't have that so did you try getting a job i did and and I mean, you don't have that conviction on your record you have others but I those were minor and we talked about those mm-hmm. what was what was the problem finding good employment I actually found the job, so a lot of a lot of things I learned I learned by going through it. I applied for this temp service, and they actually hired me in at Chrysler. You know, I was doing a cleanup at Chrysler, um, but in the midst of me doing that, like I figured it out, like I need to be outside. By me being, you know, locked up fifteen years, it's some psychological damage that happened. So I'm not able to actually be indoors for a long time, working a job like that, you know. So I had to quit for my own sanity. You know? I get it. Right. And, I mean, what what about your mental health? Are you getting psychological treatment? I'm actually not getting psychological treatment, but I have seen um, a therapist. I've seen a couple therapists since I've been home. Okay. Is that helping? You know, I've seen a it it was helping. It was helping. You should keep that. But up. one thing I think that's extremely helping is you know helping others. It's therapeutic, and then you know solving other people's problems actually helps me dig into and solve my own problem. And we've heard that, and over the I've heard that over the years. Um, right. You know, giving back helps um, your own self. So let's talk mm-hmm. about what you're doing. Okay. You you got out. You bought a house at six in Woodward. 
area? Like seven in Woodward. Seven in Woodward in Highland Park? Correct. Tell me tell me about the house. Tell me why you did it. Tell me what your vision was. Tell me what your vision is. Um, when I initially bought the house, I was just buying property, you know, to add income and add some stability to things that I was doing. I was actually going to renovate the house and turn it into an Airbnb. But in the process of me renovating the house, I was running to other zoneries that needed shelter. Um, they was going through a lot of problems, you know, with adjusting with family members. So I was just like, this, this, this is what God want me to do. Like, this is what he want me to do. He want me to provide this shelter for these guys um, until they get back on their feet because I know how hard it is. You know, I know how hard it is laying on somebody's couch or you know, uh, seeking out a girlfriend or something. Like, that's what these guys got to do, though, and try to make it. They basically sit out here to fend for themselves and figure it out. So you, you you bought a house and you fixed it up yourself? I did with a lot of help. Um, I had a couple of zoneries um, help me, I believe, in, you know, giving back. So I had one zoneree named Casey Smith that helped me cut down the trees and do yard work. Um, I had another zonery by the name of Kevin Lackey. And what he helped me do was like do the window trimmings and baseboards and things like that. So so I saw on your website and um, which which Rocky will put up for us. Um, so innocencemaintained.org that there's pictures of the house. Correct. And it's right. a three three bedroom house. Yes, yes. And, and you're in one of the bedrooms? No. Oh, you're not living no, in this house? Of course not. <laughs> this is for your, this is for a This is for a Okay, I thought you were buying this house for yourself and them. No, Okay, no, so no. you're living I somewhere I got a family else. I got to live with. <laughs> Great. You know, Tell I me about, who's your family? Um, I got my fiance by the name of Marshall Burns, and I got my mother that's living with me. And, 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 is, is and your, I have a baby on the way. Congratulations. Um, yeah. That's exciting. Exciting. Yeah. Wow. This is your first child? It's my second child. Okay. She had a miscarriage, and by the grace of God, we um, conceived right after that. So your fiance, you met her after you got out, or did you know her before you went in? No, we actually went to high school together. Oh, wow. And when I came home, I was like, man, I just really need a good woman to keep me centered. And she was available. Man, yeah, thank good. God. That's Thank God. Thank so God. you got a baby on the way. When is Available this? with no kids. Like, thank God. Yeah, we get to start a family together and live. You know, we did you date in high school? No, no, you we were just, just friends? friends. Yeah. Did she visit you? When I you was were playing in? football, so. Wait, did know. she visit you or write to you when you were in prison? Um, believe it or not, I actually cut everybody off while I was in prison because I wanted to focus on coming home. Like I don't want, I didn't want to hear about everybody doing these things and my life being deprived. Like I was in war mode, you know. And that's what I stayed at till I got home. So you built a house specifically for exonerees, who, who people who were wrongfully convicted and finally get out, who needed a hand. That's why you did this house. Absolutely. And and so it's three bedrooms. Correct. Is are there three people living there right now? No, it's just one guy living there by the name of uh, James Clad, Che Clad. And he's living there, and you're look, and you're you have two rooms available for others. Two rooms available. And how are you paying the light bills? How are you paying the um, taxes? How are you keep maintaining this house? Compensation. 
So you're money. taking your own money and doing it. My own money is doing that. Are you getting any um, donations? Um, I have got a few donations, but one of the biggest donations that I could receive was from Here to Help. Like they fully furnished the house. Okay. Because this house, you got to think, this house was down for like eight years. This house died. It literally died. And we brought it back. And, you know, we had to put a whole new sanitation line and dig the backyard up. Like, we did a lot of work. I put steel beams in, brand new hot water tank and furnace, like all new electric, plumbing, HVAC. All that stuff is brand new. So you put over $100,000 into this house of your own money. Yeah, about 110000 To help people getting out of prison who were wrongfully convicted. Correct. And what's your vision? What, what, what do you, uh, you showed me before, before we started um, today, you showed me a website that you had created. Correct. Tell me what your vision is. What do you, what do you need? What do you want? If, if the listeners and viewers want to help you, what do you need? Right now, I need support. I need everybody to go to innocentmaintain.org and look at our wish list. And we need to finish this project. Like, we really need to finish this project. And I want to make a, a, a livable situation for these guys that's coming home. There's no way that they should come home. And everybody heard everything that I've been through and how I struggled to get free. Like, you shouldn't have to come home and still have to fight. So you know what would be great is uh, if you could get uh, some some uh, additional mentoring skills. Like, I mean, how great is it that when they get out and they don't know where to turn, they can they can look at Aaron and say, "Hey, look, here's a here's a place to right. stay. Uh, getting a job is really tough. Um, you may want to look for jobs outdoors. Like, you know, just to learn from him. Yep. And to and, and to your point, you were saying like psychological help. You know, it'd be great if somebody listening said, "We'd like to we'd like to help you out. We we can come by the house and 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 have talk." group talks or whatever i mean you could really do some more to help these guys who've who've just basically lost their lives like group like group therapy sure i mean there's probably i mean there's probably i mean there's at least seven in the area that that we know of there's probably others that get out without the innocence projects help like through the there are still channels for people to get out without innocent projects but this is obviously the easiest um so if people want to contact you, they can go to your website. They can contact you there. What's on the wish list? I'm just curious. Give me some items. That- wish list is like the backyard. Like by us digging up the backyard and having the sanitation line. With the sanitation line is allow um, plumbing and stuff to go from the house all the way to like the alley. So we had to dig all of that up. Um, dig down. I think it was like six or eight feet underground and put a sanitation in line and so you know the 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 plumbing can flow correctly Uh, we need a backyard put on there we need stump removal i did most uh, most of it but you know it's a lot of things that i couldn't do because we need bobcats like to pull roots out that been in the house for eight for eight years or been growing for eight years you know they cause problems with the sewage with the housing and we just got to dig that stuff up um, properly. And you got to have a bobcat to do that, you know, because the roots be down in the ground so deep. You know? Well, if somebody's listening and has a bobcat, um, mm-hmm. please contact Aaron Salter or myself through Open Mic, and we'll we'll get the information. I'm going to give you a nice donation um, on your website, and we can talk about that after the show. But I'm very moved by your story, and I want to help. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I see this is I didn't really understand the need, but when these when 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 people get out 
it, it, they need help. And it, do you feel like it's, it's, is it the same help if you're exonerated or if you just served your time? Is it the same person, you know, the same needs that that person has when they get out? Of course not. Like this is a whole different psychological monster. You dealing with people that a lot of times everybody gave up on, you know, but God kept them fighting. You dealing with people that been told all their life that they wasn't going to be nothing. Because most of these guys that's getting into trouble, like they was, you know, getting into trouble or they was doing things to make the police have mug shots on them. Like that's what happened in Detroit. A lot of times when a person in the neighborhood, they'll just go get everybody that's been taking mug shots and they'll put them in that lineup. And that's what happened to me. Like they took mug shots from when like I was a kid man, and showed it to this guy. And to this day, you know, they don't even have identification numbers on them. You know what I mean? It's like they just made them up because these people was taking illegal photographs and turn them into mug shots. You know, so, so, so the, I mean, it's sad. It's it, just sad, but it happens. Man. But, but you're saying it's, but you're, it's interesting because I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready for that answer. I mean, it's, it's completely different. If you're, if you go in, uh, if you get convicted of something you didn't do, it's a completely different person than the person who actually pulled the trigger or did something really, really violent and bad. Correct. And coming out, um, they need, they need probably more mental health support and counseling than others they do they really um, do and you know hopefully through your organization you can set up a network you know a checklist a network of people that they can call of things they're going to need of job resources and and a place to sleep um so and, we got and, that so i didn't i didn't get together with the right people like proven innocence and survivor speaks and we actually creating that network, whereas we have resources. So when the guy come through, if he need counseling, I can call somebody. Like we actually do got that network set up. Good and it's just by the grace of God that we able to do that wow. and move like that. We got a lot of nonprofits. So um, we just need organized. to get the word out that you're, that you're, I mean, that you're here for those people. Right. And we need to get the funds because the word out without the funds, like don't nothing move here without funds, you know? innocencemaintain.org please donate um we are going to donate i'm going to get my firm involved and if you need stuff in the future will you please call me of course and um kevin anything else that we are missing i just think it's important for people to understand that people who get uh who go through the prison system the ones who are properly convicted or not uh they they go through so much and when they come out um we need to try and help them because if they don't get any help that's when we get into recidivism mm -hmm. people go back and it's these people come out they want to contribute they've just spent a lot of time where they felt they've wasted the one life they have, you know? And so I, I've just seen it over and over and over again where people come in and they just go, if I only had, you know, family to go to. Well, a lot of times the family's really mad at them, you know, they can't go there. So they, 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 they come back and they literally have no place to live, no place to work, no place to go. And it doesn't take very long before you're sitting at a shelter trying to figure out what am I gonna do? And someone will go commit a crime. Even 
it could be someone who was wrongfully convicted saying, look, I just need some money. When he was trying to get back to school, he's like, I just need some money to get back to right. school. I'm going to go do a robbery, make a bad decision because you don't know where to turn. So I, I just think that I, I think that the fact that they have this organization um, that is it's starting to put together the different organizations that exist, um, I, th I think it's just really important that um, that we take a look and see. And we should keep an eye on, on the website and see if we can't make sure that it's built out in a way where as many people who are out there trying to help are in a place. So when someone comes out, they know, oh, I just called that, that I go to this website or I yeah. just call this number and I can find what I need. Right. So that, that's why I'm offering, you know, if they want to email us or text us that we'll, we'll put that on the screen. We'll put some of your house pictures on the screen. How many guys have you had come through the house so far? Is it just the one or you come through the house or yeah, stay, actually live there? Live there. Yeah, we actually just, we still getting things together. Okay. You know? So we just trying to keep things at a minimum while still helping. My thing was to get the house up and running for the wintertime. I did not want this guy to be out in the cold in the wintertime. And is so, the heat working? Everything's working? Everything. You got to come check it out. Whenever you I was you're ready. waiting for an invitation. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know how obvious I had to be. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, all right, so yeah, I'll come, come over. We'll out. bring some bagels and uh, yeah. have a coffee at the house. I'd love to see it. No okay. no kidding. I'd love to come see it. I would love for you to come and okay. see what $110,000 look like. I oh, would love to Rocky, should see we go that. over there with the camera and, and yeah. do that before we uh, put this podcast on? You know, Aaron, you are a wonderful guy. And I, I just feel... I. Feel I just feel your emotions and I feel what you went through and the fact that you're not sitting here pounding on the table, angry at the world, angry at the Mike Duggins, mm -hmm. angry at the judge Barry's angry at the, the bad lawyer, angry at the bad detective. I mean, I, I don't think I could have done that. I don't think I could be as, as poised as you and you are a teacher and I think um, I'm, I'm so glad that you allowed us to share your story because um, I think a lot of people are going to learn from your message and learn from your grace and learn from, you know, what you went through. And if they, um, you know, they're going to know that, that these steps can go bad and they're going to hopefully get the help they need and hopefully make enough noise to get the right lawyer and get the right attention to this because, this should not have happened. This should not happen to anybody else again in America, in the world, in ever anywhere. And people have got to just keep telling these types of stories. So lawyers know, jurors know, right? Um, the judges, I mean, I hope these judges um, rethink and, and take motion seriously and on and on and on i mean there's just so many lessons to your story and i do think it's a movie one day and i do think that this is a, a you know the message has got a message must get out and thank you for what you're doing for the guys um coming out um and i look forward to helping you i look forward to visiting you and thanks again thank you thank any you. parting words you want to give us uh, I just want to part everybody with this. Bitterness affects you. It don't affect the other person. It really affects you. And it's hard to think uh, when you're bitter. You know? So if we can forgive, it's not for the other person. It's actually for us to allow us to live. So bitterness don't get you nothing but stress, anxiety, and all of that. So let's love, y'all. Great advice.
thank you again. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for watching another episode of Open Mic. Our guest today was Aaron Salter with Kevin Dietz. And I hope you were as moved by this. Please go to Aaron's website, innocencemaintained.org, and donate some money. Find out what he's doing. And if you enjoyed this episode or were moved by it, please share it. Please subscribe to our channel. Tell all your friends. Thanks for listening and watching.